you've entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietney. I'm going to start again by reminding all our listeners of the Paracast that we have a message board or forum system. If you go to Paracast.com, click on our forum link. You can post your thoughts, ideas, suggestions about the show, anything that might be on your mind. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And this has been quite an interesting week, and we've got an interesting show, a fascinating show for you this week. I think we've had some pretty wild stuff going on so far, but this has got to be a number one, numero uno, because we're going to start out with Lauren Coleman. He's somebody I've known for a number of years, and he's a cryptozoologist. And that's a real field, by the way, and he explores unknown creatures and he's going to talk about the reality or lack thereof of Bigfoot or the abominable snowman he's going to talk about the Jersey Devil Mothman David how would you like one of those to come in your backyard in New York no no that would be bad (laughs) I don't want moth anything in my backyard Lauren Coleman is a fascinating character he he's a a real researcher, and that's something that I really appreciate about both of our guests on this week's show. We have two guys that have done real research work. They're not just, they're not believers, they're people who want to know the truth, and I really, I appreciate that approach to this topic. Yeah, there's so much out there, unwarranted speculation, people who try to guess and put their guesses in the form of what they claim to be positive evidence and people who are inclined to look at things a little skeptically and not accept everything they're welcome change don't you think yeah no these guys are good indeed they are very good and what's coming up right now is good i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david bandney you never know what's going to happen next You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the complete dossier. So, Lauren, for those who are just tuning in and wondering what this is all about, what is the definition of cryptozoology? Well, cryptozoology is the study of unknown or hidden animals. And by that, we mean that these are animals that have not been verified by science, by Western science, but are usually known by local peoples, by natives, by residents, by rural individuals who are aware of their uh, natural history and their wildlife, but they have not taken any effort to show, you know, local academia or a zoo or anything. This uh, creature that might be uh, about and around their uh, 
back 40 or their jungle area. So the ones that are most often described, of course, in the media are the Bigfoot, the Yeti or Abominable Snowman, the Loch Ness Monster, and then in the last century, more importantly, the Sea Serpent. But uh, there are probably 200 cryptids, and cryptids are those animals that are un unknown and that we're interested in. About 200 cryptid searches going on around the world at any one time. Lauren, I'm wondering if the discovery of these new types of species of mammals and, and different creatures have happened in the last 10 to 20 years. Uh, just recently, there was a uh, very strange albino hairy lobster discovered. I'm not making that up. Are these new species of animals considered the realm of cryptozoology? Cryptozoology is interested in the discovery of any new species because it tends to prove what we've been saying for decades, that there are new animals out there yet to be discovered. And the, the ones that are often talked about as the, the darlings of cryptozoology are things like the coelacanth, which was a 65-million-year-old extinct, six-foot-long fish off the coast of South America, or the mountain gorilla, the giant panda, the okapi, the hair crab that you're mentioning, which is really a, an albino lobster, is interesting, but it really doesn't impact cryptozoology like most of the land animals and the larger sea and lake uh, animals do. We're interested in that uh, yeti crab, as it's been called by the media, but what's more interesting, of course, is the mega mouse shark that was discovered off of Hawaii, or the kraken that we now know today as the giant squid, or even the uh, hobbits, the, the little hairy men, the flores individuals that uh, were still around 12,000 years ago and probably have some kind of uh, impact on the, the little people stories that we're hearing from Indonesia. You're in the Paracast. We're talking to Lauren Coleman, and he is a cryptozoologist, and he has a website, laurencoleman.com, where you can learn more about him. And we're going to explore a strange new world of creatures you may not have believed existed, but they do. David? Well, so it sounds to me like in cryptozoology, size does matter. <laughs> size definitely does matter. In fact, Bernard Heuvelmans, one of the godfathers of cryptozoology, once wrote that he felt that it had to be an animal that was large enough to have an impact on human beings. And by that, he meant something that was larger than the domestic cat so that people could actually see it and report it in their folklore, in their tales, in their oral traditions. And so, yes, there's thousands of insects discovered every year. There's thousands of, you know, new microbes and different things like that. That really isn't of interest to cryptozoology. Cryptozoology really talks about the interplay between these new creatures and human beings as much as it does about zoology. You know, I always wonder here, when we hear the word cryptozoology, we think of Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, things that people don't generally accept as being real. As a matter of fact, I got this book a few months ago, which I haven't read yet, which basically says that Bigfoot is one big fake. What's your reaction? Well, my reaction is you don't hang out with the same people I do. <laughs> <laughs> because most people, I go to a lot of conferences every year. I write a blog called Crypto Mundo, and I talk to people around the world about Bigfoot, about Yeti, about uh, lake monsters, including Nessie. And there's quite a lot of substantial evidence and, and a lot of scientists there in 
in academia, you know, at different universities who are hidden behind their uh, closed doors, secret cryptozoologists, as I call them. And, and they certainly, they don't believe because none of us believe belief is the, really a providence of religion, and we don't take this stuff on faith. We take it on evidence, and we accept or deny the evidence. And most of us tend to feel that there are Bigfoot, that there are Yeti, that there are some little, uh, you know, hairy people in some of the South Islands of Oceania, and, uh, you know, even some of the thousand lakes around the world that have lake monster reports that probably a small percentage of those actually have new species of animals yet to be discovered. I think that you're going to always find books like the one that you probably unfortunately bought in which the guy gets confused about looking at the personality of different individuals, taking some individual's perhaps uh, inability to manage their money and calling them a thief or uh, taking two different stories, as I think the book that you're talking about probably, I've read that book and reviewed it, and they take two different claims for why this uh, Bigfoot case isn't real, and they merge them together in, in a, a not a too firm or solid uh, theory about why Bigfoot doesn't exist. You know, I've been doing this for 46 years now, and there's always going to be the debunkers and the skeptics, and, and I'm actually one of them. 80% of the cases that I come across, I have to throw out, but it's that 20% that really keeps me passionately going and pursuing this in a, in a very intriguing you know, path that I find myself going down. So, Lauren, given that you've, you've come to the conclusion that 80% of the cases that you've looked at are not compelling in terms of providing substantial evidence of, of being something real, what would, in your opinion, be the most compelling example you've studied that indicates that this is, a, this is indeed a real unknown life form? Well, if we're talking about Bigfoot Sasquatch, I think there's nothing more compelling than looking at the combination of evidence that came together around the Patterson-Gimblin film. Here you have a situation in the Bluff Creek area where you had 350 years of traditions from the Hopa Indian. You had that reservation very close there. You had that being the exact site where in 1958 you had some interesting footprints that were in combination with some footprints that were faked, but there still was some good evidence there. Uh, you have two individuals coming upon a Bigfoot. They have eyewitness testimony. They're hearing their animals react to this creature. The horses and the ponies bucked up. They actually smelled the Bigfoot. They took pictures of it, and they saw and then took cast of 10 footprints of this individual Bigfoot. So that combination in 1967, October 20th, 1967, in Bluff Creek, California, I think is one of the most compelling pieces of information and evidence that says to me Bigfoot probably does exist. Obviously, if a lumber truck hits a Bigfoot and we have a dead body with DNA, then we have proof. 
but we're just talking about getting us to the point of actually accepting the possibility. What's intriguing to me is to look at what happened last year in the year 2005 when it was announced that the ivory-billed woodpecker was rediscovered based upon eyewitness accounts and one very bad piece of videotape. Uh, a creature that supposedly had been extinct for 60 years is brought back into science and zoology based upon the thinnest of evidence, and yet we have you know, thousands of miles of plaster casts of footprints of Bigfoot. We have a film. We have uh, hair samples that are coming back near human but not human. Uh, different things like that that show me oh, we've got a good case for Bigfoot, probably as good as the ivory-billed woodpecker right now. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. I'll tell you something, this gets to be stranger and stranger, and that means you're in the Paracast. Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist, joins us this evening, and we're talking about strange creatures that sometimes go bump in the night, or maybe they don't. As far as Bigfoot is concerned, based on what you're telling us here, this is just another creature on this earth that we don't understand. There's no paranormal or UFO-related aspect, is there? Well, there's all kinds of different people out there that want to talk about that, and, you know, you can interview those on some other shows. My background is zoology and anthropology. Those were my, you know, the, the field work that I'd done as well as the studies that I'd done in the universities. I went on for graduate degrees in psychiatric social work and social anthropology and looked at different things like that. So I'm interested in the human aspect, but as far as Bigfoot, uh, I look at this creature as a zoological creature. I understand that human beings and their eyewitness testimony is an important part of that evidence. So I have to, you know, in some ways psychologically look at where some of these cases are coming from and know that some of them have more to do with the feelings and personality and minds of some humans. But as far as fourth dimensional alien involvement, you know, them being part of the paranormal, I'm really not interested in, in that aspect of Bigfoot reports because I'm a, in very many ways uh, a follower of Ivan Sanderson and Sanderson felt that the best evidence is the tangible intangibles those cases in which you can actually get some evidence that you can measure that you can feel that you can actually pour plaster into a footprint are much more what I'm uh, about and, and not so much the looking at whether or not the UFOs maybe telepathically communicating to to Bigfoot that doesn't doesn't interest me at all because that's explaining one unknown with another that doesn't give me any evidence to look at really so we have lots of things running around on our, on this planet based on what you're telling us that we are only beginning to understand we're trying to explore outer space or trying to reinvigorate the space program sounds to me like there's so much we don't understand about this planet that <laughs> maybe we better get our acts together well, I, I, it's always been one of the 
paradoxes of uh, cryptozoology that by the time we find out that Yeti exists, it may be already extinct. I mean, uh, you know, when I got involved in this in, the, in 1960, there was still forest in Nepal, and we know now that the, the forests of Nepal have been cut down by about 50%. And we know that about the oceans, too. We're still discovering new animals in the ocean, yet the habitat of these creatures are disappearing, too. So I'm always kind of pulled both ways by this. We can have a new area in New Guinea, for instance, that was recently discovered with new species of birds and new species of mammals found there, or the lost world of Vietnam that's recently been discovered, you know, uh, in the 1990s. And we have those pristine new areas discovered, and then they're overrun by ecotourists. So it's kind of a paradox. Let's talk about Bigfoot for a second. Now, is this some kind of missing link between the ape and man? Is this another kind of human being? What is it? Well, of course, we don't exactly know what it is until we catch one or until some you know, more firm evidence. But, uh, of course, missing link is a misnomer. There are all kinds of different links. It's almost like a, a woven, you know, bunch of vines as far as looking at the fossil record. But there's two main theories that go along with Bigfoot. One, that it's a, a gigantopithecus, Dr. Grover Krantz, who died in 2002, very much was behind the, the gigantopithecus theory. And this is a an ape creature, ape-like creature, perhaps like a giant gorilla that lived about 300,000 years ago in Asia, in mostly in China, India, and Vietnam. They were about 10 feet tall, and uh, we know that they were rather extensive, but they only, so far we've only found four mandibles and a thousand teeth of these creatures so we have no postcranial material although Kranz felt that they look like Bigfoot. Myself and some other anthropologists and cryptozoologists, we're in the school of the Paranthropus camp and this was Australopithecines robustus. It was a creature that was between six and a half to eight feet tall found in Africa and Asia and the, the giant man of Java for instance was one of these and it was sometimes uh, fossil finds were came in at uh, about uh, you know six to eight feet tall just exactly matching the Bigfoot. What we know is interesting about these fossil finds is this creature had a sagittal crest both in the females and the males and the sagittal crest which is found also in the males and gorillas are, is that ridge of bone that goes across the crown of the uh, skull, it's where the, the jaw muscles attach. So that in the Bigfoot sightings and even in the Patterson film, you can see that these creatures have pointed heads. With Gigantopithecus, we don't know if they have pointed heads, and we also know that they were much larger than what the range of Bigfoot is. So the Paranthibus school really has, has gained some reliance in the last few years, and that's as far as that multi-faceted amount of evidence as far as tracks and tracks in the film and smelling it and seeing it. You also have to add in the fossil evidence. People say all the time, well, you know, we have no evidence that Bigfoot exists. Well, yes, we do. We have all kinds of fossil candidates, but people can ignore them if they want. But uh, I think for Antipas Gigantopithecus, we certainly have lots of candidates that could fill the bill as far as being Bigfoot. Well, along these lines, Lauren, I have to wonder, 
Let's assume for a minute that Buddha is a real thing. Why haven't we found any contemporary remains? If these things are alive, they must die. If they die, their body, I would assume, would decompose. Well, that's a very good question. It's the one I answer in my book, Bigfoot, in the last chapter. I can go all over the country and ask wildlife biologists and hunters, have you ever found a mountain lion dead in the woods? Have you ever found a bear dead in the woods? And mm -hmm. the answer, the universal answer is no. Even though we know bears and we know uh, mountain lions exist and we know they exist probably in numbers that are probably a hundred to a thousand times more you know, current than, than Bigfoot, we don't find large animals in the woods. And why is that? One, decomposition is extremely fast in hardwood forest and the forest of the upper, uh, you know, North America, because you have insects, you have, you know, maggots, you have all of that, but you also have rodents and porcupines, which quickly eat anything with calcium in it, like bones and antlers. Sure, you can find moose antlers and some deer antlers, but the woods would be filled with deer antlers that drop every year if we didn't have these kinds of animals. The other thing is most animals that are large and somewhat intelligent tend to hide their bodies when they die. They tend to hide them under brush, in caves, in uh, low-lying areas where they almost realize that they will not be found and eaten by other things or that they will be disturbed. They kind of go to this a, a cold, cool area to die. Also, if you have primates like Bigfoot that actually exist, you probably have family groups that may be burying them, that may be hiding the bodies, may be covering the bodies. So we don't even know what the traditions are among an ape that's you know that large and able to do something with the body. The other thing is that we have found bones. We find bones, uh, fossil bones, all the time, but very rarely. Take Gigantopithecus, which we know existed on Earth, along with Homo sapiens and Homo erectus, for three million years, and we've only found four jaw bones and a thousand teeth, and people are complaining because we can't find Bigfoot yet. You know, so it, it's... <laughs> the other thing is uh, we have found the bones of Homo florentius. We found nine individuals now of this little hairy creature that's three feet tall, incredible uh, find, and there have been little hairy creatures reported, little hairy primates, orangue pindek, and other little yetis that have been reported from all over South Asia, and now we have the bones. And these weren't bones that were fossilized. These were bones that were about 13 to 12,000 years old. They were the consistency of a mushy tissue, and so they, they were just you know, really contemporary bones that had been preserved in the cave. And we have the bones now of something that was little and hairy. And people, that's why cryptozoology is really getting another new look from anthropology, because those uh, scientists down, those, those anthropologists tell me that they now are looking at caves where the local native peoples have reported these little hairy creatures. They're using cryptozoology to look for more bones. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
on the Paracast. We're talking to Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist. We've been talking, of course, about Bigfoot, or the abominable snowman, which is a word that some people can't even say, and I can barely say it. But let's move to some more creatures here, because we don't have a lengthy amount of time to talk with Lauren. What about the Loch Ness Monster? Is that real? Is that fake? What is that all about? Well, I think with Nessie, with the Loch Ness Monster, you got a, a combination of folklore and uh, some sightings that are very mysterious. First of all, you have to look at the long traditions in that area of the water kelpies. Water kelpies from the 14th century on have been being seen in some of the lakes of Scotland. And these are said to be water horses, in which they had like a horse-like head, uh, a mane, different things that definitely would tell us this was a unknown creature that was more mammal-like. Uh, you've got going on, uh, looking at the Nessie reports, the more contemporary Nessie reports, a real push and pull between the British who feel that you know we should fantasize about this creature being a plesiosaur, uh, some kind of prehistoric reptile left over from the age of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. And yet these are very cold lakes. Uh, this animal would have to be definitely warm-blooded. And uh, even when in the 1960s when I was first looking at these reports and examining them and laying them next to each other, I saw there's reports of eyebrows, of uh, manes, of hair covering. Uh, the Loch Ness Monster is not this slick little reptile. It seems to actually be a large-bodied uh, seal or walrus uh, more often than not. And uh, the other hidden fact about the Loch Ness Monster is that somewhere in the range of upwards of 40 reports of these creatures have been on land and crossing the land. And we do know that the, the end of the lock is only six miles from the ocean, so there may be actual a transmigration between the ocean and the Loch Ness uh, all the time, and probably from some of these mammals. So I'm not surprised we haven't got more evidence there. Uh, I think some of the evidence is, is more folkloric, some of it's shaky, but there still is this hint that there's something uh, unusual going in. Loch Ness. The other thing about the lock that uh, most people don't realize is there's enough water in Loch Ness because it's it's as deep as 800 and 1,000 feet in some places. There's enough water in Loch Ness to cover every individual on Earth under six feet of water. And that's a lot of water, and that's a lot of places to hide creatures. No comments about wet <laughs> wet logic here, but that sounds fascinating. That does sound fascinating, what's going on here. Let's look at some other creatures out there, and some are folklore, some might be real. The so-called Jersey Devil, what is it, what was it? Is it something that we should accept as possibly real? Well, the Jersey Devil is one of those local words that have more to say about the local folklore than they do the creatures. In 1909, the Jersey Devil reports were really a real estate hoax. Uh, somebody created some large footprints of a bird-like creature, uh, planted some false stories in the newspaper to try to buy up some land. 
And so most of the Jersey Devil, you know, this whole business about uh, the lady Leeds had a baby and the baby was, you know, she said she didn't want any more children, so number 13 was the devil, and that flew off into the Pine Barrens. All very nice folklore, but having absolutely no information for us as far as cryptozoology. I've heard the Jersey Devil name used for Bigfoot reports, for um, mystery cat reports in New Jersey. Jersey. So to me, the New Jersey Devil really doesn't exist, except as a, a hockey team. Um, it's really not there as far as a good label. It's kind of like uh, if the milk goes sour, you blame it on the Jersey Devil. And so it doesn't really tell us anything. I think it's just one of those collection words that uh, says, you know, there's something strange going on there, but we don't exactly know what it is. And then you start talking to people and interviewing the people, and you can kind of sort it more correctly. Does the chupacabra fall into that same heading, Lauren? Yes and no. The, the first reports of chupacabras in uh, 1995 really came out of some reports in Puerto Rico of some creatures that were about three and a half, four feet tall that were killing goats and then supposedly draining their blood. And chupacabras actually means, and it's both the plural and the singular form in Spanish with the S on it, has has the translation, the literal translation of goat sucker. And mm -hmm. so that's where those early reports came out of. And then because there was a sort of Hispanic opera named Christina, which was very popular across Latin America and Florida, then chupacabras became the uh, creature of celebrity. And as I was even quoted by ABC News, uh, it was very much like Jennifer Lopez, very cross-cultural. So uh, it became a very attractive creature to talk about, and yet really got blown out of proportion. You, I started hearing reports in Jamaica Plain, Boston, of chupacabras, in Tucson, in Miami, in any Hispanic uh, location or community where people did not know what was killing their livestock or causing them trouble, it was supposedly caused by the chupacabras. And being a good cryptozoologist that I am, I uh, put down my $25 and sent off through a website of uh, some chupacabra footprints that were being sold out of Miami. And I duly opened the box and found that somebody had sold me a great footprint of a, of a dog. So, <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, man. So, so chupacabras are very popular. They're still seen, and you see the illustrations, and some of the art coming out of Mexico is very interesting, but uh, as far as what's that going on in Puerto Rico, it still seems very confusing. Hmm. And, of course, all of the early investigations of the chupacabras were done by UFO investigators because there were no cryptozoologists in Brazil or Puerto Rico to look into these cases. So all of the reports have come through the UFO literature and have been framed in, did they come out of a UFO? Are they, are they you know, some experiment from the government? Are they some kind of, uh, you know, intervention from the flying saucers? So it has that tint to it, too. And so I've been trying to get back to the real animals under chupacabras, and, and maybe there's something there, maybe not. But I, well, you, I think part think of the so. problem is the cross-cultural stuff. Yeah. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to welcome Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist. And this, well, it's looking like his reaction to the whole thing is these are real creatures that maybe we don't know too much about, but they're real. They're not weird, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, that kind of stuff. And that all that folklore around it maybe has made it more difficult to understand what's going on. Would you feel the same way, Lauren? Definitely. I think that uh, it's a a well-known fact in cryptozoology that when an animal gets reported for the first time, it takes on a great and fantastic aura around it. When the mountain gorilla was first seen in Africa, it supposedly was this gigantic ape-like creature that went around squeezing native women to death and eating and killing colonists and explorers. We now know the mountain gorilla is a gentle giant and has none of these attributes. But in the beginning, when animals are newly discovered, they take on a larger-than-life, a folkloric, almost mythical uh, appeal to them. And I think if we just get through that phase and kind of take it in and then really get beneath the smoke and see if there's any fire there, then we as cryptozoologists can kind of come away and say, well, there's another new animal. And then, of course, when the animal is discovered, it becomes part of zoology and and, uh, it becomes very mundane. Well, if you can call Bigfoot mundane. Let's look at some of the other creatures that people have talked about, and maybe they are related to folklore, maybe they are related to paranormal events, or maybe they're real creatures. And let's go into the Mothman. (laughs) Mothman is very interesting. I, of course, have studied Mothman a lot. I'm on the, you know, DVD with... uh, John Keel there on the movie. Mothman is is another case where you have the media intervening in a not-too-helpful way. In 1966, when all of these reports started coming out of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, uh, the first reports were of a large creature that looked, and the locals were calling it the Big Bird. And they said it was about five to six feet tall, had uh, glowing red eyes only when there were headlights thrown into it and then it would fly off. These very much matched a 100 years of reports from that area of large birds. We have reports from the 1920s of birds flying behind jalopies, and a 100 years before that of flying around and bothering horse-drawn carriages. Anyway, in 1966, after the first few reports, a newspaper copy editor in Ohio who was a big fan of the Batman series then on TV, decided to create this name for a headline, Mothman, and Mothman stuck. And then even it got even worse in the Mothman Prophecies movies when they started showing this, you know, expert, this fictional expert in the movie looking for moth lore in old books and encyclopedias. Uh, the Mothman has nothing to do with moths. It has everything to do with big bird reports, giant, you know, birds or giant owls that may be in the area that have been known to be in that area of the Appalachians for over a hundred years. They live on the bald mountains. They live in caves, maybe. Uh, they pick up little dogs and eat them. It's it's a well-known local part of the lore, 
and uh, some areas call them thunderbirds, and it merges into that folklore, which is very real. And if you look at where these moss bin slash thunderbird reports are on the East Coast, they're up and down the Appalachians. They're from the Black Forest of Pennsylvania up into the Maine, where you get reports from the Penobscot Indians, down into the lower part of the Carolinas and the Smokies. If you go over to the middle part of the country, you'll find they center around the Ozarks, and they go up the Illinois River, past the places where Lawndale in 1977 had the reports of the two giant condor-like birds that came by the the uh, Logan County home of the Lowell's, and they picked up the Marlowe Lowell, and they carried him across his yard and dropped him, and they were flying north. There's migration patterns that are quite obvious, and it's, uh, you know, if you, all you have to do really in a lot of these reports is step back from the folklore, step back from the headlines, and gather the reports, look at the data, and you can start seeing the patterns. And, of course, it's well known on the West Coast, the Thunderbirds on the totem poles and, and, you know, the Medicine Wheels and the Rockies and different places like that. So there's three major populations of Thunderbirds that tend to go up and down uh, in North America, and Mothman just happened to get one of those local names that makes it even more exaggerated. And, of course, you add John Keel in it. John Keel's a whole... Uh, subject in and of himself. Worth three or four uh, different discussions. Yeah, right. But he certainly brought in a lot of stuff about psychics visiting him and predictions and the Pope being assassinated in his book, The Mothman Prophecies. And a lot of the stuff that got all merged together in West Virginia really happened to John Keel in New York in his apartment in, in on uh, Mount misery new york so uh, people get very confused when they read john keel because that's part of uh john keel's perspective is he really doesn't see himself as a cryptozoologist or even as a Fortean or or ufologist anymore he sees himself as a demonologist and he's told me that quite a few times that he writes that way and that's the way he wants to really start the world. So if you have somebody writing that way, their material is naturally going to come out in a much more mystical way. How did the Mothman get intermingled with the collapse of the Silver Bridge in West Virginia? Because that was a focal point of some of the writings, the one from, of course, the late Gray Barker. The Silver Bridge related the appearance of Thunderbird as some kind of harbinger of doom. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that there's a sinister aspect to Mothman that we have to really look uh, in an overall way. We have a situation here where, I mean, John Keel did not call his book The Mothman Prophecies. Some editor at uh, Saturday Review Books called it that because they were trying to capture this notion that the Mothman was a banshee, that it, it had become the precursor uh, to exactly 13 months to the day later when the Silver Bridge collapsed. And then exactly uh, 13 times 2, 26 months later, Mary Hyde, the, his friend who was the editor there, uh, died very suddenly. So there's, and also was I-bar number 13 on the bridge that actually had broken and collapsed the bridge. So there's a lot 
you know, that you can look at the Mothman story and look at the numerology. And, and actually, on my website, I have the Mothman death list to kind of show uh, how sinister this can get. There's 84 uh, people that have been associated who have died looking at or writing about or talking about the Mothman. So there's something extremely sinister that's going on with Mothman. And, uh, you know, I, I have no theories other than to say we need to pay attention to this and and you know when we're driving after we're off the show to make sure we drive carefully because some bad things happen to people when they talk about mothman well i'm not going to be driving after this for <laughs> david are you going to be driving i think you are i'm driving down to new york city today and strangely enough i'm looking outside my window and there's a bunch of snow on the ground so uh i'm getting a little little anxious here Lauren, I'd like to ask you something we ask all of our uh, guests. How did you get involved in this whole field? What made you into a cryptozoologist? Well, uh, in 1958 and 59, I was reading the books of Charles Fort, and uh, I'm sure your listeners know who Charles Fort is, but he just briefly was an American intellectual in the 1920s and 30s that wrote the Book of the Damned and some other books that really questioned authority and asked scientists about you know, those things that he called the damned were everything that was excluded by science. And then in March of 1960, I saw a movie uh, by Ishiro Hondu, who went later on to do the Godzilla films. But he had been a documentary filmmaker, and he made a film called Half Human uh, in, the in 1957 and 58. But I saw it on TV in March of 1960, uh, then I went to school the next week, and I asked my teachers, what is this about the abominable snowman? Because the half-human film was about the abominable snowman in some mountains in which some scientists tried to go capture one, and they got a baby and all of that. Anyway, uh, my teachers universally said, uh, don't waste your time, it's a myth. So, of course, I read everything I could about the abominable snowman and found that uh, there was something here. There was something that, uh, you know, scientists were uh, interested in, but some other people were excluding. And most of the people that debunked it didn't know anything about all of the evidence that pointed in the direction of the possibility. And so that just got me into, uh, I quickly found out that Ivan Sanderson the next year wrote a book and I started corresponding with him. and. Bernard Heuvelmans, and within the next two years, I had 400 correspondents around the world and was doing field investigations on black panthers and giant snakes and little hairy creatures in southern Illinois, and one thing led to another. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. In the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Lauren Coleman joins us, cryptozoologist. If you go to laurencoleman.com, you'll find a wealth of information. Now I'm going to prepare for the wrap-up here. I'm going to ask you a couple of key questions here before we let you go, Lauren. Number one, have you seen any of these strange creatures personally? 
I have not seen any of these creatures personally. Uh, what I have seen in southern Illinois, I, I certainly saw something that looked like a black panther across the road, but I was coming back from work with uh, a carpool and couldn't stop and be a cryptozoologist. All I could be was a, a member of the general public that kind of was shocked and startled. Uh, why I was on some investigations, though, I, I did find footprints of an ape-like creature. I've heard some screeches in the woods when I was looking for another creature. So I've had those kinds of experiences. But uh, you know, I've been to every state in the United States but Alaska, and I've been to Loch Ness. Uh, it doesn't disappoint me that, that I haven't seen a cryptid, but it's just a part of kind of being an investigative journalist to know that sometimes you're out there, but you don't see anything. Well, it certainly makes things more... <laughs> more intriguing if I was somebody who wanted to learn more about cryptozoology and I wanted to read one of your books which one would you recommend to give a better or complete overall picture of what's going on I think that there's many different uh, ways to look at that among many different books. The one that a lot of people tell me they like for introduction is Cryptozoology A to Z because it has uh, many different entries about different creatures and kind of gives an overview. If you're somebody that really wants to go out on the road and do investigations, a lot of other people like Mysterious America because it actually is, is me on the road doing investigations and talking about different cryptids. Two different kinds of books, but both different insights into what I do. Thank you very much. You had a question, David? Oh, no. I was going to say that that second one almost sounds like it wants to be a DVD on the road with Martin Coleman. <laughs> well, anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist. Go to laurencoleman.com. To learn more about the things he does, see articles, interviews, references to his works and those of others. Very intriguing, and a lot of reality may be behind all this. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, David. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. The Earth is a strange place. Who needs aliens? We have all these strange beings on the planet. Yeah. I wouldn't like one of those big, hairy creatures to come into my backyard. Of course, a lot of strange things happen in Arizona. You know, remember Travis Walton, who we're going to talk about very briefly in our next interview. Travis Walton was abducted. That happened in Arizona, right? That's right. This is UFO Central, except for New Mexico, of course, which is our neighboring state, which is also UFO Central. And our other neighboring state is Nevada. With Area 51, another UFO centerpiece. I'm in the middle of it, man. I'm in the crux of it. You're a weird guy who lives in Weird Central. But by the way, I think it'd be really cool to have a Bigfoot show up in your backyard because then think of all the possibilities. Think of all the TV shows you'd be on. Yes, think of the money from the books and the yeah. lectures. Yeah. But I don't think I'd want to deal with one of those. You know, maybe they don't like me. Uh, just give him a cup of coffee. <laughs> maybe be like King Kong, though. He likes, he'll become friendly, he'll become my wife's pet. You know, somebody that, you know, she considers like her little dog or cat or something like that. And she keeps him at bay like the girl in King Kong. Wasn't there some really bad TV show or made for TV movie about like a Bigfoot showing up at some family's doorstep and then like adopting his some member of the family? I remember something like that. There was a movie like that, too, wasn't there? Yeah, I think there was. It was pretty bad. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. 
Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. So, Dennis, how did you end up as a UFO researcher living in Roswell, New Mexico? Well, my background is civil engineering. I had uh, three years in the United States Army and uh, in an engineering battalion, and then I went to work for the Texas Department of Transportation doing civil engineering quality assurance, quality control work on materials for 33 years. And probably about 25 years ago, I bought a book by Jacques Boulet, uh, about UFOs, and I'd lay in the backyard and look out in the sky and wonder what was out there. And I got interested in the Roswell incident sometime in the early 80s, I guess. Started getting all the information I could, and when I retired in 1996, I moved to Roswell and went to work for an engineering company. And on weekends, I started volunteering as the UFO investigator and doing research at the UFO Museum here in town in, in Roswell. And after about a six-month period, I gave up the engineering job and started volunteering full-time, 70 hours a week, uh, seven days a week, 10 hours a day at the museum. And did that for two and a half years till 1998, when I decided to go independent and do the research on my own. I started working with Stanton Friedman and other researchers to do primarily the Russell Incident Research. That then later expanded to uh, underground bases, Area 51, and a couple of years ago I was put on the advisory board of the Great Pyramids of Giza. So I have limited my research to four areas, primarily because I found that if you try to cover everything involved with ufology, you probably wind up not knowing a whole lot about anything, because there's so many different aspects of the, the subject. So I've limited myself to those four areas of research and have been writing editorials since 1999 for about 20 websites, UFO Magazine, MUFON Journal, and several other publications. Try to book as many lectures as I can. However, the Internet has had an effect on that, that most of the, the smaller groups don't have the finances to bring speakers in and travel and things like that. Uh, the research continues primarily on the, the Roswell incident. You're in the PowerCast. We're talking to Dennis Balthaser. He lives in Roswell, New Mexico, as you've heard, spends a lot of time dealing with the Roswell case. So let's look at that. I'm going to ask you a question. Because we had William Burns on the show about a month ago, and we talked about the book The Day After Roswell, and those of you who listen to Coast to Coast AM, and we praise the show, it's not considered a rival of ours, they replayed just the other day the interview they did with the late Philip Corso. So let's start with that, Dennis. I met Philip Corso three times before he passed away. In fact, he had a book signing here in Roswell, and I spent quite a bit of time with him. Extremely likable fellow. A good positive military career. The problem I had with the book was that there are absolutely no references in the back of the book to verify anything that is set in the book. Hmm. His explanation of things is very simple and very possible. However, if you don't have the validation for information on this subject, you can't go very far with it. And for that reason, I've, I've been very skeptical about what he said in the book the day after Roswell. Well, that's really interesting, Dennis, um, because I've had some issues about some of the revelations in that book as well. 
What things specifically did you find problems with? Well, the fact that there's no references. Uh, most books, and in this field particularly, because there's so many skeptics and debunkers and critics out there, including the government, you have to validate every piece of information you get because this is the biggest story of the millennium. And if you don't have the validation, we found, uh, we being Stanton Friedman and other researchers, that he was not connected with the NSA, like he said. Uh, we've really? done the checking on that. The fact that fiber optics, uh, lasers, and the things that he talked about that were developed out of the Roswell craft, those are possible, but there's no validation for it. All right, this is getting to be more and more interesting. So let's look at this now. This book comes out in his sunset years, as some people might say. The man was over 80 years old when this book was written. Do you think he was just looking to make a buck, or do you think he was sincere about all this? I'm wondering now quite a bit. It's my understanding that he would never got any money at all out of that, and I, I can't speak for that because I don't know it factually, but I believe that I heard that... the. Uh, he was not really reimbursed for the book. And the book was co-written by Bill Burns. So how much of the book was written, how much of the information came from Burns, and how much came from Corso, I don't know. But his military career cannot be questioned. There's no doubt about that. Except and for the NSA. But except for that, yeah. Yes. Uh, he was very active in Italy, uh, very well liked in Italy. Uh, Paola Harris has uh, done several interviews and, and a lot of research on him. I'm hung up on the fact that there's no validation, nothing as a reference in the book. On the other hand, would he be able to provide that kind of validation? Maybe he felt there would be repercussions to himself or his family if he were to provide concrete references, but if you just write a book and you make statements with no evidence, then nobody complains. That, that's an interesting point, but one of the things I think I personally learned from Corso was that you can talk all you want to. <laughs> and the government can deny it because we can't prove anything. Now, I do lectures and I do editorials, and I pretty well badmouth the government a lot, and I have received very little uh, response from that. I'm of the opinion that you can say anything you want because they can deny it. However, if you start getting close to physical evidence, that's when you start feeling pressure, which I've gone through with the interception in Oklahoma where I went after some metal in 97. Hey, why don't you tell me about this? I'm getting curious. You just raised a very interesting point. Interception in what fashion? I got a phone call from a guy in Oklahoma who said his daddy was stationed here in 1947 as a military policeman and was at the site guarding the bodies and on guard duty and picked up a piece of metal that was laying on the ground and kept it. He guarded the ambulances, taking the bodies to the base hospital, said he saw a, a being get out of the ambulance with doctors. He described it as child size and, and on its own power into the hospital. And I made arrangements to go to Oklahoma to meet this guy. He had cancer, was dying of cancer, and had six months to live when I talked to him on the phone. So I made arrangements to go over and meet him to obtain the piece of metal because he wanted to get rid of it. He was scared to have it. And confidentiality was assured. And I had a phone number. I got to, to uh, Oklahoma in June of 1997 and called several times from a hotel and kept getting a recording. And finally, I got a phone call saying, meet him at Denny's restaurant at 7 o'clock. So I went to Denny's restaurant, a man and woman walked in. He said, are you Dennis? I said, yes. He said, the gentleman you plan on meeting will not be here. 
I said, who are you? He said, we're special agents of the United States Air Force Office of Special Investigation. I said, how'd you know I was coming over here? He said, we knew Monday you'd be here Friday. I said, is my phone tapped? He smiled and said, you know how we do business. I spent three and a half hours with these two people, didn't take any notes, scared to death because I had never experienced anything like this. He had a map with him. We talked about crash sites in, in, in New Mexico. He talked about Area 51, the government cover-up. Three and a half hours of conversation at that Denny's restaurant. He said that they had seen the medal and had picked it up, and the family had decided that the government should have it, not me. So I came back empty-handed. Talk about a roller coaster on the way over. I got to thinking, you know, if this is real and I get the medal tested and it proves to be what we think it is, this is going to change history. Of course, on the way back, I was totally rejected because I'd never met the guy or never found the medal or anything else. And I followed up on this. Uh, I got home on Sunday. Monday, I called the son and told him I was upset with the way things happened. He said, I can't talk or someone's still here. Hmm. At that time, another voice came on the phone, and I talked to him for 20 minutes. He said he was uh, the boss of the two guys, or the two people I had met at the Denny's restaurant. And then pretty well dropped it for several months and back... December, about six months later, I realized I had never checked to see who owned the telephone in in uh, Oklahoma. When you get a phone bill, it has a, a number but no name. So I called my long-distance carrier and checked on that. And turned out it was the first name of the female agent. So I called over there again and talked to a woman and had her on the phone about 10 minutes. And she should have hung up on me because I had her on the defense. And a man came on the, the telephone and told me, if you keep messing with the Air Force OSI office, you're barking up the wrong alley. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me stop for a second to tell everybody you're in the PowerCast. With Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're talking to Dennis Balthaser. We'll call him the Truth Secret Roswell, which is, by the way, the identity of his website, truthsecretroswell.com. Or just click on the paracast.com. We've got a link to his website and make it easier for you to navigate. And we're talking right now about the Roswell case. And what you're telling me right now, Dennis, it sounds suspiciously like something that related to the old Maury Island UFO case. Ever hear of that? Yeah. <laughs> Where this, all this controversy and the alleged government interactions related to some metallic fragments that allegedly came from a UFO? Mm-hmm. Hmm. The, the the key to also, of course, is probably going to be physical evidence. The closest thing we have is the the General Ramey pictures, which were taken in General Ramey's office, where he's holding a piece of paper, and the print on the paper is facing the camera. We're trying to analyze that, and there's about nine lines of, of type, uh, type words that are probably a teletype, and so far we're pretty much in agreement that words victims of the wreck are on that piece of paper. Well, weather balloons wouldn't have had victims. So that probably is one of the smoking guns that we have. As far as physical evidence, there has to be pieces that pieces of metal somewhere. Somebody would have picked up something. 
uh, whether they will ever come forward, we don't know. We were hopeful that, that someone someday will come forward and say, here's a piece of it, have it tested. Now, Dennis, given that you're in, uh, you're living in, in uh, Roswell, have you had the opportunity to speak one-on-one -on -one with people who were reportedly witnessed this back in 1947? You know, that's one of the fortunate things about living here and doing the research I do. I have had clo close relationships with first-hand witnesses. To give you a few names, Walter Halt, who wrote the press release, saying we captured a flying saucer. He was a public relations officer under Colonel Blanchard at the base in 47. Mm -hmm. Glenn Dennis was a mortician. James Bond Johnson took the photographs in General Ramey's office. These are three people that I met and personally had known for several years and had many, many conversations with. Unfortunately, Walter Halt passed away uh, in December of last year, just a few months ago. James Bond Johnson passed away March 25th. I'm in process right now of writing an editorial about the witnesses that I've met and how we're losing them. I have, for years, at, at lectures and in editorials, have said that the guys that were involved in 1947 are in their 70s or 80s if they're still alive. Right. And we are starting to lose them very fast. That is getting very, very unfortunate because it makes it more and more difficult over time to be able to get a handle on this. Also, as you get older <laughs> and as the time passes between the original event and your recounting of it, certainly your experiences, your life experiences, what you've heard from other people, it can color your perceptions. That's an interesting point because uh, the last report put out by the United States Air Force in 1997 where they mentioned that the bodies were anthropomorphic but uh, dummies the, uh, the unfortunate thing about that is the dummies weren't used till 53 <laughs> yes this i heard that <laughs> this happened in 47 so what they're saying what the government and the military are saying is that there's a time lapse that these people have have lost memory of, of what happened and when it happened i've talked to many many witnesses and in most cases they relay stories to me as accurately as if it happened yesterday this is not a subject that you forget easily. However, you're right in that many witnesses embellish their stories, and that's unfortunate for researchers because that makes our job hard, harder to do. When anything is embellished, then we have to go in and do all the verification again to try to prove things. And that was one of the problems I had with James Bond Johnson, who took the photographs. He actually took the photographs. There's no doubt about that. But he embellished the story a little bit, and that really created some difficult things for me. Walter Hogg was as accurate as he could possibly be. He was a public relations officer and one of the best witnesses we had. Jesse Marcel, who was the intelligence officer, his son lives in Helena, Montana. He actually handled the material as a seven-year-old boy when his dad went out to the debris field and brought the stuff back by the house. So those are the type of witnesses we look for that we can validate and verify the information and know that we have good witnesses. So, Dennis, it seems to me that what you're saying is very appropriate. And my question would be, what would be the common threads to these stories, the ones that are present in all the stories that survive embellishment that ring true to you? This is not a story that was made up by a bunch of people getting together and deciding they'd have a UFO story because mm -hmm. the incident happened in 1947. The research didn't begin until 1978 when Stanton Friedman found Major Marcel, the intelligence officer, retired and living in Louisiana. Uh, so we had a 30-year gap there. After the incident happened, probably three days after it happened, it was over. 
Jenna Ramey put out his uh, his story uh, less than 24 hours after Walter Holt wrote the article saying we had captured a flying saucer. That next morning, all newspapers east of Chicago had Jenna Ramey's story in it that it was a weather balloon. And that was pretty well accepted. Uh, back then, 60 years ago, things were a lot different in this country. People respected and trusted the government. And if they said it was a pink elephant, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. We just came out of the Second World War. There was a lot of respect for our military, a lot of respect for our leaders in Washington. And that's something I emphasize at lectures. You know, I ask my audience, name five people in the government you respect. I got a blank look back. And that's unfortunate, but that's where we've come in this country because cover-up has become a way of life. Young people don't understand cover-up because they're growing up with it, they're accepting it, and that's unfortunate. The witnesses didn't, for the most part, they didn't know each other. And then 30 years later, when the, when the research started, the stories are similar in, in context, but yet the people weren't aware of each other, so it wasn't something that was fabricated. Right. But what are the common threads, though? I mean, what are the things that, again, to you well, seem... The fact that uh, something crashed 60-some miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico, in 1947. You have a rancher who found the, the debris and brought it to Roswell. He knew what weather balloons were because he had recovered some. Back then, when the Air Force put up weather balloons, they had a tag on them, and there was a reward for recovering them and turning them in. And for a poor rancher back in 1947, 10 bucks was a lot of money. So they would definitely have looked for the balloons and, and tried to recover them and turn them into the government. Mm-hmm. What he found was not anything that he recognized. So he brought it to town and asked the sheriff about it. The sheriff called the military, and the rest of the story is history. The question I have here, which is now that all this time has passed since Roswell occurred, and we have the information down there, and at this point, short of getting actual fragments of the craft or some secret government reports, what can we do today in 2006 to try to prove whether this happened or not? Well, you're doing it. Uh, with this show that, that you have right here, this interview, you're, you're distributing information from a serious researcher, and, and you're getting that information out. One of the biggest problems we have is the media. It's a joke to the media, and the possibility exists that the media is controlled. So if you look at the judicial system in the United States, a person can be convicted for life imprisonment or even execution based on the testimony of one witness. We have hundreds of witnesses, and we cannot get into a courtroom. It's a political disaster for politicians. However, the surveys that are taking, Roper and different surveys that are taken, indicate that anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of the people in the United States believe in UFOs and definitely believe it's covered up. Those are higher percentages than politicians get elected by. Mm-hmm. And it's time that they start paying attention to the American public. It's time that we get the Constitution back, we the people. We have reached a point where I don't know who in our government could admit that they've lied to us for 58 years. Because if they do that, then they've opened a can of worms to Iran-Contra, Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, Watergate, different things. Uh, it's going to be very hard for anybody politically to come forward and do anything serious about getting the truth out. So, Dennis, you think controls this information at this point? I read your um, essay on your website about what level of government is actually in the know 
I think it's a very good essay. My question to you is, who then is sitting on this information or the ability to uncover it? That's our belief, and, and I talked to Edgar Mitchell, the uh, sixth man on the moon, the astronaut, several years ago. He told me we have two governments. We have an elected government and we have a black government. The black government consists of very few people. Back in 1947, we believed there was a group called Majestic 12, which was top people in our government, politicians, military, uh, academic people, and there was supposedly a procedure written for handling this kind of thing and it was referred to as Majestic 12. We're still working on that, trying to verify all that. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me hold your thought there for one second, Dennis. I need to tell our listeners, this is the Paracast. We're talking to Dennis Ballfazer. If you go to truthseekeratroswell.com or click on his link at theparacast.com at our show's home site, you'll be able to find more of what he does. And right now, we're trying to dissect truth from fiction about Roswell. Go ahead. I believe that uh, there's probably a group together today, and, and I think it would consist of very few people in our government that are in control of this. It's surprising to most people that the President of the United States doesn't know about this fully. He's probably made aware that UFOs exist, but he doesn't have the clearance to be involved in it much more than just knowing briefly what's going on. He's a temporary employee. He's there eight years, and then he's gone and can't be trusted. So I think that the individuals that are in charge of it uh, have an extremely good handle on it. I personally believe that the Roswell incident will not be made public if, in fact, they captured a, a craft from an unknown origin and have that craft until they get the military benefit out of it, they will not go public. They'll continue to deny the exist or they ever had it because our military will have to get the benefits out of it, which are obvious. If they can get here, we can't go there, so they know something we don't know. Yeah. And I think that would be the key to it, that they would have to get the military advantage out of it before anything would be made public, which would go back to Corso, too. Well, that, right. of course, raises the big issue again, that if this is genuine, there would always be a military factor until such time right. as when or if UFOs landed and they said, this is what we are, this is who we are, and that's the end of the story. Until then, yeah, I've heard, what I've heard that uh, military technology advances about what, 15, 20 years for every calendar year. And we use very little in our daily life that the military hasn't already done. So I can I can really believe, and that's my thinking, is that whatever they have, they, they may not have figured it out yet. I mean, they may still be trying to get the thing open or, or know how it operates, know where it's from or how it was made or how it functions. And until they know that and get the military advantage out of it, we won't, I don't think, they'll go public with anything. It's, it's sort, sort of hard, hard to imagine that our military is competent enough at this point to really do anything with this technology. We see how, for example, the Middle Eastern situation is being handled now. It that's not military, that's politics. No confidence in the military. I have, I have complete confidence in the military. I don't have any confidence in the politicians that direct the military. We haven't had a war since the Second World War because nobody's declared it. 
we had these these conflicts like Korea and Vietnam and Iraq, but our military is not used. Uh, it's it's political, and that's unfortunate. I think uh, that we put our men and women in, in danger like that. But that's the way we operate. So I guess there's nobody in the military that feels that they can use utilize this power in a way to even supersede the government, which is kind of a nightmare scenario. But it, yeah, it is. Makes it all the more difficult. So let's look at the larger question of UFO reality. Are we dealing then, assuming Roswell is genuine, with extraterrestrial visitors? Are they coming from another dimension, another time? Do you have any ideas at this point? Only speculation. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's from a different galaxy. or It could be our own neighborhood. I mean, if you look at what we've done, uh, the space exploration is pretty, pretty minute, really. We've had problems getting to Mars, which is, is not that far away. It's uh, pathetic as far as I see. I think our space program is absolutely pathetic. I think they've wasted a lot of money and they haven't accomplished an awful lot. And I can't imagine now, for example, I can't understand how we can get to the moon in 1969. It's now 2006, and we have nothing better except for those space shuttles that keep failing. You know what NASA stands for, don't you, NAFA? Never a yeah. answer. <laughs> I, I believe that we probably have another another space program other than NASA. I think NASA is a, a public pacification, and I think we probably do have other things that we're working on that may have a lot more research done, maybe maybe a lot more information. But you know, we're, we continue to use these solid fuel rockets, which are the most dangerous things there is. If we have the technology we claim to have, then why are we still using that? Uh, there's a lot of questions about NASA and, uh, you know, the Mars, the face on Mars and different things like that. They just won't shoot us straight on this stuff. Well, let's talk about the face on Mars. Of course, we've all heard Richard Hoagland and yeah. what he says about it. Are you suggesting that he's right? And for those who are wondering what we're talking about here, because mm. we have a number of people who are just getting into these subjects, what is the face on Mars and what do you think about it? Well, the base on Mars is something that was picked up on one of the satellite, uh, one of the space probes that went out there, and, and, and it appears from from space off of Mars to look like the face. A uh, face. There's also some objects that look like they might be pyramids. Uh, personally, I think they're probably natural phenomena on on Mars. I don't think they're they're man-made objects of any kind. But the, it would help if NASA would come out and say, this is what it is, and instead of giving us this runaround, just like the Roswell incident. You know, if, if this was something that happened that was some of our own technology that went wrong, admit it, and we'll go on with what we're doing. You know, I, I, need, I can go fishing. I don't need the frustration at the expense of doing this research. But for 58 years, we've been lied to. We've had four different excuses on what happened at Roswell. And I think it's time that somebody shoots us straight. You know, be honest with us. I think the American public can handle it. Fifty-eight years ago, people, there would have been panic, there's no doubt, because the War of the World show proved that on the radio when they, they said we're being invaded. People committed suicide over that radio show. And things are different today. Young people have grown up with Star Trek, Star Wars, the X-Files. They're ready for it and, and would accept it. But... It's reached the point that they, they can't admit it. They can't come out and say that because there'd be too many other things involved. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dennis Balthaser. If you want to check his Truth Secret Roswell.com website, go there directly or go to the Paracast.com and click on the link, which might be easier. And now, David, you had a question. Dennis, you know, you said something just a moment ago that resonated with me in that you feel that if at this point the truth were revealed, that the younger generation would be accepting of it. And I wonder about that. I wonder if all of a sudden we found out that indeed there have been visitations, there has been some involvement, for example, with our government and these beings, wherever they might come from. Um, I wonder if people are really mature enough emotionally and spiritually at this point to face that potential reality head on. You know, what we talked about in terms of Star Wars and Star Trek and the X-Files, all this stuff was couched in the context of entertainment. But what happens all of a sudden if we find out that the abduction scenario is real, which, you know, there are many people who believe that it is. I have certain issues with it, but how would people really feel? Do you think really feel? Well, I think, this? you know, science fiction is becoming science reality. Sure. There are a lot of things that are on Star Trek and Star Wars which are, are factual things today. And I think the young people would not have a problem with it. Uh, they've grown up with this and, and pretty well have accepted the fact that uh, there's probably life out there somewhere. From them, uh, there would be some there would be some problems with the religions of the world, with the financial institutions of the world, and probably with some of the leadership of, of various countries because we are so egotistical to think that we are the only things in the universe when, in fact, the world is becoming pretty small, and we may need to start looking at ourselves as, as earthlings rather than as Americans or Italians or French. And I just cannot be egotistical enough to think that we're the only living thing in, in the universe. I'm active at First Baptist Church here in Roswell, and I have done two lectures for the senior luncheon at the church, and I've had the biggest crowd of anything they've ever presented. Uh, I take very little harassment. Once in a while, I'm kidded about have you seen any aliens or things like that. But overall, my research is respected, and that's all I, I want. So I, I think it's a, a subject that needs to be put on the table. I think mm -hmm. we need full investigation. I think we need to reveal what these things are, the Murray Islands, the L.A situation, the Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, the Roswell incident, and things like that. I think we need to be shot straight on these things. Okay, shoot us straight right now, Dennis. What about Area 51? That's one of your fields of expertise. And Area 51 is another part of our folklore, I guess, as much as Roswell, maybe not quite as much, but certainly it's a major factor. What do you think is going on there? Secret experiments with aliens or what? Until recently, Area 51 didn't exist. It hasn't existed since 1955, when it was first opened. It was not opened by the military. It was opened by the CIA to test the U-2 aircraft. They needed a place that was secretive. Uh, instead of using Edwards Air Force Base out in California, they decided they needed a new place, looked at 12 locations in the southwest United States, and decided on Groom Lake. It today is the size of Connecticut. It has the highest security of any military base in the world. I'm going to Rachel, the little town next to the Area 51, in May to do a lecture. It'll be my first visit up there. We have been told there's as many as 22 levels below ground. 
They have two runways. One is 15,000 feet. The other is 30,000 feet. Ooh. That's six miles of runway. Jeez. That means they're bringing something in at tremendous velocity. The employees range from 1,500 to 4,000 at any given time, depending what's being done. They are exempt from environmental laws. The President of the United States puts a proclamation out every year, starting with Clinton, saying that they are exempt from environmental laws, meaning that they can burn toxic waste on the, above the ground, which no one else in the country can do. The, because of national security, the, the base is completely off limits to anybody. You sign an agreement when you go to work there saying that you will not talk to anybody about what you do or where you're at, and they've been able to, uh, to keep that in force. Oh, we have heard rumors that the, maybe the Roswell craft or parts of the Roswell debris or the bodies may have been taken there from Wright-Patterson in Ohio. Can't prove that, but that would be a good location to keep it. It sounds like it would be a lot more sure sure than Wright-Patterson. Yeah. It gets to be pretty complicated. Of course, you could also just consider Area 51 a place where we do our own secret experimentation. Sure, it doesn't have sure. to be foreign technology no. doesn't well, have to be aliens. Well, we know that for a fact, because the craft since the U-2 have been tested there. The SR-71, the Blackbird, the A-10, the A-12, the Stealth, the B-1, the B-2 have all been tested there. And that will continue. That's where they do the technology for our new aircraft, for radar and for different things. Pilots for the U-2 were taken out of the Strategic Air Command and became employees of the, the CIA rather than being military. So we know that that's going on there, yeah. But we also have heard rumors that there may be a section called S-4, which is close to uh, Groom Lake, where they may have recovered craft. Not provable, but that's where we uh, have found that. It gets to be very complicated, and unfortunately, we don't have the time to explore it further today. Except I'm going to give you a chance now to promote your website, your lectures, and everything else. Dennis, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, website is truthseeker at Roswell, all one word. That's the word A-T. Truthseeker at Roswell.com. I put my editorials out about every other month. Every one of them since 1999 is archived on the site. My webmaster is in Albuquerque. She's been with me since 97, 98, when I started. Probably have had well over a million hits on the, on the website. Interesting note is that there's over 2,000 websites on the Roswell incident, and I have one of the top 10, which I'm extremely fortunate and, and happy with. Too bad uh, that most of the research that is done is second, third, and fourth-hand research, and, and we have to put out fires all the time because people are putting out information that have never been to Roswell, never interviewed a witness, don't know where the crash sites are, things like that, but they made themselves uh, researchers. I appreciate it. And we'd, we'd both appreciate it, Dennis. I've uh, been on your site. I've read your editorials. I really appreciate your perseverance. And uh, your analytical approach is, is, is really sound. I want to submit one thought to you, though, about the things you said before. Um, I agree with you that the current generation is ready to accept the notion of life elsewhere in the universe. I don't think there's any question about that. We know enough about astronomy to know that that's inevitable. It's a very, very different, different question, question though, than, than the idea of human beings potentially being the subject of potential genetic experimentation. Those are two very different things. Well, I think there's talk about the base up at Dulce, New Mexico, which is up north of Santa Fe on the Colorado border. There's been many rumors there about uh, uh, biogenetics taking place there with humans and other beings. 
Uh, again, it's not verifiable at this point, but there's a lot of stories about that. I have, over the years, interviewed people who claim to have been abducted. I am not in a position to, to really help them, but I was in a position to listen. And I felt that was important that the, they needed to vent and get that information out to someone they trusted. So I've listened mm-hmm. to them, and I don't know what they experienced. I don't know about the abduction situation other than Travis Walton, who you may remember from Fire in the Sky out in Snowflake, Arizona. Mm-hmm. He was abducted, he claims, and gone for five days and brought back. I have met him. I have watched him speak, and he has experienced something that has changed his life. We've got to stop there. Thank you very much, Dennis Balthaser. Thank you for joining us on the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack Attack of the the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand and science fiction tradition. You know, I hate when we run out of time. One day I think we'll do a two-hour show. Right now we'll keep it at 90 minutes. Let's see how things run. But I think we might consider doing a two-hour show one of these days if these interviews continue to be so packed with information. I think we could do a whole show just with uh, Dennis Balthaser. That's a guy who sounds like he's got a lot of fascinating information. But what was that thing he brought up at the end with... This place that they're doing. Isn't it interesting there that as we were doing this, David gets disconnected from the network? I don't know. Who's listening to us? Are the men in black on the line? But seriously, that Dennis Balthaser is a guy who we should devote a whole show to. I think he's got enough information and enough experiences to talk about for the whole show. Don't you think so? I want to do that. Maybe the next time we have him on. The other person who I think deserves a full show, I think all of our guests do, frankly, is Ken Thomas, the guy who deals with conspiracy theories. Because we basically got through Maury Island and a couple of other things, and that was about it. And I sat there and I said, you know what? How could we stop the interview here? And we had to stop it. That's part of the business. But I would very much like to bring him back for a much longer session because I think he had so much to offer. But Dennis kind of surprised me because I've heard of him, but I didn't realize how good he was and how careful he is about talking about these subjects. He's cautious, and a lot of the people out there are so inclined to go off half-cocked about something, and he's there, and he's just sort of playing it cool. You know, he's a smart dude, and he just tries to talk about things that have some sort of evidence. Even the issue of Philip Corso, where others we've talked to seem to accept him, 
he likes him, accepted him as someone who was knowledgeable, but he had a few concerns. Absolutely. I think both of our guests today were people who are truly analytical researchers, and that's what we need in the field, uh, Gene. We need people who are, who are not believers, people who are looking to actually understand and know what the reality of the situation is. That's what we need in order to get this away from the margins and make it more relevant, make this whole topic more relevant. Because like Dennis said, you know, this is potentially the biggest news of the millennium. Also, it's a question, and we should explore what about the reaction of people. Now, Dennis seems to feel that people will take it in stride, especially young people. Oh, okay, Martians are here, or Zeta Reticuli, whatever. They're here, no big deal, no problem. But I think a lot of people out there, a lot of institutions will be very seriously threatened. If, Absolutely. Yes, this is Absolutely. not something that's very casual. It's not something that the government can get away with. Of course, the issue may be taken out of their hands, which is if there are aliens out there, I think eventually the issue will be taken out of the hands of governments, and they won't be able to do a darn thing. You might be right, though. Um, uh, it always brings me back to the question of why would, if these creatures exist, what would be the benefit to contacting us directly? What would be the benefit to revealing themselves? I can't see from their point of view any benefit to doing that. So I don't think that's going to happen. I think if we want to find the truth, we are going to have to dig for it. I just think that's the only way. The problem is here is that the ultimate evidence may require producing some aliens or some spaceships or some artifacts saying, hey, folks, this is what's happening. But that's the case of the unknown which can cause troubles. Because if you go around saying, we've got aliens out there, but we don't know if they're friendly or not, at least they haven't attacked us yet. Right. Well, that we know. And, and see this, and we have to find some guests who can talk to us about perhaps darker topics. I mean, you know, there's, there's a theory out there that I've read about that some of these creatures might indeed be interdimensional creatures that are affecting our history in subtle ways with a dark agenda. I mean, not to, you know, bring up X-Files territory, but perhaps the truth is weirder than we think. There's always that possibility. Well, it's something that we're going to have to explore on future episodes of The Paracast. The Paracast, with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.